Good morning and welcome to the Gathering Church. You can have a seat. My name is John Mark Redwine. I'm the lead pastor and it is such a gift to have you with us here today. If today is your first time, uh, welcome. We're so honored to have you. This, this is a church where we believe family is a part of our culture. We want every single person to feel welcome and wanted and seen today. And I hope that's been your experience so far. Uh, today is a great day to be joining us because today is Life Group Leader Sign Up Sunday. Yes. Let me tell you a little bit about our life groups for just a second. If you're new here uh, or you've been coming for a little while thinking about how and when and where to get plugged in, uh, our life groups are the absolute best way for you to begin to build community at this church. We believe that you were made to be known. The church shouldn't be an experience where you just come in, you sit in the back, you don't talk to anybody, you don't know anybody, and you disappear. It's not something to watch, it's something to be a part of. And the place where you really begin to build those deeper connections and form those lasting friendships is in the context of groups. And so uh, our groups this fall, we're going to be launching some Bible study groups, some discipleship focus groups, men's and women's groups, and all kinds of specific groups towards uh, what you might need or want or, or areas where you may want to grow. The summer is all about partying, we believe, at the Gathering Church, that summertime is party time. And so our summer groups are free market. What that means is uh, whatever you want to lead, you can lead it. It's a shorter term. The semester is just a few weeks long. And most groups will be hangout groups, dinner groups, meet up at a brewery, go mountain biking groups, hiking groups, that kind of stuff. It's such a great time, one, to get involved and really just to meet people through having fun and hanging out together. And two, it's a great time if you've never led a life group to begin to lead. This is the best time to do it. You really, you know, you, you can do it. You, you have the skill set to lead a summer life group. If you can hang out with people, you have the skill set necessary. You don't have to have the best home to host. You can meet up somewhere in this incredible city with so many fun outdoor venues and things to do in the summertime. And so if you have ever thought about it or if you've never thought about it, today is the day to sign up to lead a life group. We need you to lead these groups groups. And so right after service, you can go meet our life group coordinators, Josh and Taylor, right outside, and uh, they will give you any information that you need, answer some questions, and get you signed up to lead a group, leading a life group. What a great way to spend your summer. Well, today we are going to start a brand new series, and I'm excited about this series um, because it's called How to Fight Back. How to Fight Back. Uh, we're going to be doing some mixed martial arts for the next couple weeks, spiritually speaking. Uh, as your pastor, I think two things take priority in my job here. Two things. I think I've got a lot of different things to do, but two things are, are most important to me. And one is introducing people to a brand new relationship with Jesus Christ. One of my favorite, most favorite things to do is to have that conversation with people, to be able to communicate messages that expose the gospel and who Jesus is. I love that. The second is taking followers of Jesus on the spiritual journey to spiritual maturity, spiritual formation, the thing that helps you live a better life in the purpose God made you with. It's such an important part of what I get to do. And one of the most important things that we learn as we're growing closer to Jesus is what we call uh, how to fight back, is uh, spiritual warfare, learning 
that there are going to be forces that oppose us in this world, in this life. And we don't have to be afraid of those forces. We don't have to bow before them. We don't have to fall to them. They are not more powerful than the God that we serve. And so in this series, what I really just want to do is teach you, uh, in simple terms, where to begin on spiritual warfare, how to fight back against the opposition you're going to receive in this life. We're starting today with the very first rule of warfare. Know your enemy. Know your enemy. There's a book studied by generals and leaders who have waged war for hundreds and thousands of years called The Art of War by Sun Tzu. And in that book, he says this, if you know the enemy and you know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. If you know yourself, but not your enemy, for every victory gained, you will also suffer a defeat. And if you know neither the enemy nor yourself, you will succumb in every battle. It's not the Bible, but it's good wisdom. And with that in mind today, we're going to learn about our enemy and the strategies that he uses. Next week, I'm going to talk about specifically how to fight against him, the prayers that we use, the the, the ways that we protect ourselves. And so very practical on both sides. I hope you'll come for both weeks. They're both really an important part of this conversation. Ephesians 6 says this, verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There can be no mistaking it. We have an enemy that we cannot see. There is a spiritual enemy in this world that has a strategy to kill and steal and destroy. He wants to wreck you. He wants to take you out of your purpose. He wants to ruin everything that you love. That is his mission in this world. But our enemy is not made a mystery to us through the words of Scripture. Rather, he is revealed. In fact, within the pages of Scripture are the tools to both know yourself and know your enemy so that you need not fear the results of a hundred battles. So I want to tell you about the enemy today, what the Bible teaches us about him, our enemy. First, he was created. He was created, and this is really important for you to understand, really to grasp. The devil, Satan, the adversary, he's not on a level footing with God. I think a lot of times in the culture that we live in, we grow up kind of seeing the the angel and the devil on the shoulder. We see them as equal and opposites, yin and yang type situation, whether they're uh, adversaries who are equal in might and power, but that is just not the case. The devil is a created being. It says in Colossians chapter 1, about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of all creation. And by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. 
and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things, invisible and visible, were created by God. There is nothing that exists that he did not make. Rulers, authorities over this present darkness, the principalities of this world, they were all created. They are created beings. Invisible, it says. Because there are things that God created that you and I are not able to see. I want to get a little bit wild for a minute and step into some some revelation, some, some Ezekiel today. I want to talk about some things that are kind of hard for us to understand. I think the spiritual world tends to be hard for us to understand because it's difficult to grasp things, one, that we can't see, and two, that are completely outside of what is normal or attainable for our reality. You know, in the world that we live in now with movies having CGI so realistic, I think it's getting easier and easier for us to understand the supernatural. But it is still something that is so foreign and so wild. When I get into some of this stuff, it's going gonna, it's gonna to feel really weird, especially if you're new to all this. Bear with me. I've got somewhere that I'm going with it. If it just feels a little bit crazy, just bear with me. The Bible talks about spiritual beings living in a spiritual realm, angels and demons. Let's talk about angels for a second first. In the Bible, there's different kinds of angels. Close your eyes, think of an angel. Picture it right now. What are you seeing? Are you seeing the halo? Is the halo shining? Open your eyes. Don't, don't fall asleep. It's too dark in here to keep them closed for long. You see the wings and the white gown. You know, Maybe uh, you had a grandmother who collected angel statues, and they're on every shelf in the house, and you've got an idea of what an angel looks like in your mind. What you have seen on cartoons or on those nice statues or in the many, many paintings that were painted in the Renaissance time period uh, is not what angels look like in the Bible for the most part. The angels, uh, which is just the messengers of God, usually appear in the Bible looking like people. Occasionally they were glowing people or, or people that were frightening by their very appearance being uh, otherworldly. But People, for the most part, is what they look like in the Scripture. Whether or not that's what they look like in heaven, we don't know. We're not told. There's something in the Bible called an archangel. An archangel is described as a warrior, a warrior angel. And then the Bible talks about two other categories called the seraphim and the cherubim. And these are wild creatures really beyond our imagination. And these creatures had specific roles that were designed to emphasize, protect, and declare God's holiness and all of the things that make him great. They were made to worship and protect and cover. And closest in proximity to the throne of God, where he is seated, where his presence dwells, is a being called a cherub. A cherub. These are not the cherubs that exist in cartoons and on statues in your great aunt's house. Not little chubby babies with wings, you know, flying around. The cherubs in the Bible are actually way more terrifying than that. Ezekiel, the prophet, was one of the ones who saw the throne room of God. Not very many people in, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures got to see this heavenly realm. Ezekiel is one of them. And he described what he saw in detail. He was a prophet of God, uh, 
few hundred years before Jesus came on the scene, and he talked a lot about the end. He talked a lot about the heavenly realms and the spiritual things. He talked about the Messiah. He had all kinds of great prophecies. But this was an experience where he's describing what he sees around the presence of God as God allows him to see it. This is in uh, chapter 10 of the book of Ezekiel, verse 5. Buckle up. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings, and their legs were straight, but the soles of their feet were like the sole of a calf's foot. And they sparkled like burnished bronze. And under their wings on the four sides, they had human hands. Unclear how many hands. Seems like it's probably a lot. And the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. And each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. And the four had the face of a lion on the right side. And the four had the face of an ox on the left side. And the four had the face of an eagle, and such were their faces. And their wings were spread out above, and each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies. And each went straight forward, whether this, wherever the spirit would go, they went also, without turning as they went. As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Did you follow that? Did you get a mental picture here? This is a bizarre description. Uh, here's what I want you to take away from this. The things that you can't see in this world the spiritual beings that genuinely exist that we cannot see are beyond our imagination and just past our understanding. There's a lot going on in the spiritual world. One day it'll all make sense to us. Today may not be that day. These are created beings. And they were created, what Ezekiel shows us and exposes as he's describing these cherubs specifically is that they were created with a really specific purpose in mind, a holy purpose, a good purpose. They were created by God. When you see the image of the cherub surrounding and covering the presence of God, you're not seeing something that's on the same playing field as God, obviously. You're obviously not seeing something that is uh, to be considered close to God's holiness, close to his amount of power, close to who he is as a being. No, you're seeing something that was created to cover him, to protect him, to worship him, and to declare his holiness. One of these cherubs is not in place anymore. Ezekiel told us that as well. It's also described in Isaiah chapter 14 and in Revelation. Ezekiel is given a prophecy from God about the fall of a king, but most scholars agree that the comparison is being drawn from the king to the devil himself. It serves as a bit of an origin story for the devil. It goes like this. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. 
And you were in Eden, the garden of God, and every precious stone was your covering. The ruby, the topaz, the diamond, the barrel, the onyx, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, whatever that is, the turquoise, the emerald, the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. Now, I know the description I just gave you didn't sound particularly beautiful for what you and I are thinking. There's four faces, there's lots of hands, there's wings everywhere. But the impression that Ezekiel had as he described them was that it was like burning bronze, that it was like a light too bright to see. See, outside of our imagination and beyond our understanding, this is one of the most beautiful things God ever created. It's one of his most beautiful beings. It's the, it's the being that he made to exist just inside of his presence. And so it is beautiful. He said, I made you beautiful. On the day that you were created, keyword created, they were prepared. The workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you means I gave you a purpose. I gave you a job to do. From the moment that you were born, I knew what you were going to do. From the moment I crafted you and created you, I had an assignment for you. It was in you from the beginning. You were the anointed cherub who covers. So Ezekiel tells us, that he was one of the creatures closest to God whose wings literally covered his presence. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, you covering cherub. So the devil is a created being, a cherub, whose job it was to worship and cover God, but who became corrupted and sinned. He is a creation of God. He is nothing like God. He may have considered himself worthy of attaining the likeness of God, but he was dead wrong. Because from everything I can read about him, he was created by God. He was given a purpose by God. His purpose was for God. He existed to honor and to worship and to protect and to cover the presence of God. But he rebelled from within. Let me answer two questions here. Number one, why did God create the devil? People ask that a lot. Wouldn't it have made life a lot easier if he did not create the devil? Why did he do that? And in that line... If he created the devil as good and the devil became bad, why not just poof him out of existence right there? Why did he cast him down here where I am trying to live my life? What the heck? God created the devil with this holy purpose, just like he created every person on this earth, just like he created you with a holy purpose. But just like us, this cherub had the ability to choose his purpose or the opposite of it. Why? Because God wants real love for us and from us. And in order for love to be real, it has got to be something that we choose. Which means there has to be an opposite choice. If we did not have another choice, if there was not sin, if there was not something that could take us away from God, and all we had was God to choose from, that is not love. That's forced love. 
That's abuse. And our God is not an abusive God. So we get to choose. And so can the cherubs. And one of the cherubs chose himself over God. And because God wanted us to have the ability to truly love and to truly love him, he allowed us to choose between ourselves and God. And the second question is this, why was the devil in Eden and why is he here on earth? And it's for the same reason, so that the love that we give is real love. Why the devil was in Eden was because of the nature of Eden. The way that we understand heaven and earth is that we see them as two different places. Heaven is the place where the clouds are. It's just above the ceiling. Okay, you can, you can see it a little bit if you're on a big airliner above the clouds. You could see some people playing harps, hanging out, chilling. But that's not how it actually works. Uh, heaven and earth are separated in our minds because that's the easiest way for us to understand it. It's how we've tried to understand something that's beyond our grasp and outside our limitations here in this life. In reality, the spiritual and the physical exist together all at once. Time is something, time and space are things that bind us here in this physical life. It is not something that binds the spiritual world. And all of that was different in the garden. In the garden, everything coexisted together all at once. God walked in the garden. Very likely his cherubim were with him. Some scholars even suggest that the fall of Satan and the fall of man coincide. They suggest that part of the rebellion that got the devil cast out of heaven in the first place was his choice to tempt and lead humanity into sin. And when Genesis 3 describes that fall of man and man being cast out of Eden, this is also the moment that the devil is cast out as well. Who knows? What we know for sure is that just as sin got man exiled from God's presence and into this world, sin got the devil and his angels exiled as well. So your enemy is a fallen cherub, a being created to worship and cover God who chose himself instead, and so he was taken out of God's presence. He was created. He is not all-powerful. He is not everywhere all at once. He is not all-knowing. He is not even close to being God's equal. He doesn't even have a name. Lucifer is a transliteration from the Latin Vulgate, the Latin version of the Bible. It means morning star. And morning star is the way that Isaiah describes the devil. It was a saying because back before astronomy was really known, there was this star, which is Venus, that would appear bright even into the early hours of the morning as the sun began to rise. And as the sun began to rise, they would see this star burning bright, and they called it the morning star. And they talked about how the morning star was in competition for brightness. It, it was like it was defying the sun. Like it was trying to tell the sun, I'm just as worthy as you are to shine brightly during the daytime. That's the comparison Isaiah is making when he calls him the morning star. And the Latin word for morning star is luciferius which we translated to Lucifer in the King James Bible. That is not his name. He doesn't get a name. He's not even worthy of a name. 
He's called the Satan in Scripture, the devil in Scripture, the adversary. He does not have a name. He's a created being who, who has fallen from God's grace. Second thing you should know about him, he's got allies. He's not alone. The New Testament and Old talk about demons, demon possessions, demons accosting and assaulting people, so on and so forth. And even more prevalently, it talks about kings and princes and principalities of this world in a spiritual tense, meaning geographically that there is some spiritual presence that oversees areas, that declares kingdoms, that draws boundary lines. Revelation 12 talks about this and really gives us our best answer to what all this about demons means, who they are, and where they came from. In Revelation 12, it describes a war in the spiritual realm. It's talking about the moment when the devil rebelled. It says this, A war broke out in heaven, and Michael, that's the archangel, and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. And the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So he had followers. He had people that he had corrupted and deceived and uh, angels that he had corrupted and deceived who had joined his cause, who rebelled against God with him, who, who believed that they should be in power. And they were cast out of heaven al alongside of him. And now they work alongside and in agreement with the devil. Ephesians 6 tells us, it says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against rulers and authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Biblical doctrine suggests that our enemy works alongside these other spiritual principalities to oppose the will and the purpose of God. He spiritually opposes things that are good. He wages actual war against us, and he has allies that help him do it. The devil cannot be everywhere all at once. He is not God. He is one place at a time, but he is not alone. And he has allies operating all over. So this is what the Bible teaches us about the devil and his allies. They're here and they're working against the purpose of God. But now that you know that, you should also know this. Number three, his ending is already written. And see, the enemy has already been defeated. He is here among us temporarily, but he knows where he is going next. He's already been given his sentence. He is destined to be defeated by the power of Jesus. Just because you know him now doesn't mean you need to fear him. The Bible says all kinds of good things to remind us that God is far more powerful than the devil. We'll do a lot of them next week, but I'll give you a couple this week because I don't like talking that much about the devil without encouraging you a little bit. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the very beginning. But the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 
Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you the authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall confute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Deuteronomy 28, 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And the final ending of the devil and all his angels are in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. It says, the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Cartoons lead you to believe that, uh, that you go to hell and the devil is there torturing you. That's not true. The devil is the first person getting tortured in hell. Hell was created for the devil. It was made for him and his followers. That's why it exists. He's got an ending and it's written and it's not good. So that's your enemy. Now let me show you a couple of his strategies so that you can see him coming. First, he deceives. This is a key aspect to his nature. Jesus says this about him in John 8, 44. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desires. And he was a murderer from the beginning. Not holding to truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. His strategy is to fill our world with lies, to fill our culture with lies, and to fill your head with lies. He's crafty about it. His best lies are not outright lies. Instead, he distorts God's word and he distorts God's character and the way you understand it. Look at Genesis 3.1. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Come on, did God really say that? That's not what he means. You know God. He's always saying big things. Come on. He's not going to kill you. He's just jealous. He doesn't want you to eat it because then you'll be like him. He distorts God's word. He distorts God's character. Did God really say? Do you think he meant that? Surely he was being extreme. Right out the gate, he's putting doubt in her head about the word of God and about whether or not she should trust in God. He's still making the same play over and over and over again. He is not original. He runs the same play every time. He has followers of Jesus looking at the word of God and saying, does the Bible really mean this? I mean, surely this part is outdated. Well, we don't really need to take that seriously anymore, do we? Culture's going this way. Maybe we've been interpreting scripture wrong the whole time, and there's a better way. Maybe this is what it really meant. He's got us misunderstanding the words of God and misunderstanding the character of God. He's a liar. And his chief strategy is to fill you up with lies. Second thing is he's a tempter. Tempts. Every temptation he brings against you can be placed into three categories. 1 John 2.16 lays them out. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the fodder, fodder, the fodder, is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the three temptations that he brought against Jesus in the desert. The lust of the flesh, the idolatry of what feels good. He tempted Jesus with food after 40 days of fasting. Goodness gracious, you know he was hungry. 40 days of fast. I'm, I'm, after 45 minutes of fasting, you can tempt me with just about anything and I will fail. I did 40 days of fasting, he's in the desert and the devil tempts him with food. It's because he knows your weakness. He knows your moment of weakness. He knows the, the moments when you're most likely to say yes. And that's when he brings temptation. When you're vulnerable. Lust of the flesh is giving into anything that your body wants, that your chemistry wants without consideration to whether or not it honors God. Gluttony, taking food beyond just enjoying it to where it becomes an idol in your life. Sexual sin, so many good people have fallen to the lust of the flesh. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes. That's the temptation to constantly pursue whatever looks better. Whatever looks better, that's what I'm after. It's that insatiable desire within you to keep getting more. I've got to have more. Whatever I have is not enough. It's the idolatry. I skipped. Of things. It's the idolatry of things. When my money becomes more important to me than anything or anyone else. The lust of the eyes. When I'm always looking for something better or someone better, when I'm never satisfied, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The pride of life. This one is the most prevalent. It's the idolatry of self. The need to feel important. The temptation to make myself more important than everyone else to me. The temptation the devil himself fell to, the pride of life. Self-worship. Look out for number one. I need to be more and more important until nobody else matters. This one is really, it's especially prevalent in our culture right now, masquerading around as self-care. I believe in self-care. I believe in that. I believe in taking care of your emotional and your mental health. I believe in having boundaries. In fact, I've taught many messages on boundaries and guardrails and how important they are to you in your life. But there is a line. There is a line where we begin to disguise selfishness and valuing myself over the people I was created to serve as self-care. Pride of life. Nothing's more important than me. I gotta take care of me first. Me first. I gotta look out for number one. It's a dog-eat-dog world out there gotta look out for number one. If I don't look out for me, who will? The pride of life. The pride of life allows the devil to bring the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes into your life. The starting point. And it is the sin that he fell to himself. Took Jesus up on a mountaintop, showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and just said, just bow to me and all of these will be yours. You can have it all right here, right now in this life. I'll add it to you. The pride of life. 
The devil is a tempter and his temptations are always the same. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Know his strategy so you can stand against it and begin to fight back. The last thing the devil does, his last strategy, he's just got three. And they're the same three over and over and over and they're effective and they work. Last one is he accuses. He accuses. Revelation 12 says the devil's going to be thrown into hell. Or Revelation 20 says the devil's going to be thrown into hell at the end. And it says this, after. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. He's the accuser. And this description of our enemy really is describing one of his biggest strategies. He accuses. He is the voice in your head reminding you of all the things you've done wrong in your life. He repeats regrets over and over and over again until they're not just in your ears, but they've sunk down into your hearts. He is the originator of guilt and shame. All the guilt that you feel that Jesus has washed clean for you, has removed from you, has freed you from. You have no guilt in God's eyes the moment you accept the sacrifice of Jesus. But the devil says, no, you're guilty. That doesn't count for you. Don't you remember what you did? Don't you know who you are? He's an accuser. He accuses us of of the things that bring us shame. He heaps shame and shame and shame upon us until we're drowning in it. We can't breathe because we're so filled with our shame. We keep a distance between us and God because there is an accuser who is accusing us of all the things that used to separate us from God. But the gospel of Jesus Christ says that that accuser is a liar and the father of lies. Because your guilt was taken from you at the cross of Calvary. Your shame has been lifted and you have been set free, declares the word of the Lord. You don't have to listen to his strategies anymore. He's an accuser. So what? You can shut him out and shut him down. His accusations are empty. Isaiah 54, 17 again. No weapon formed against you shall prosper and you will refute every tongue that accuses you. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. And that's not all he says. Because next week we're going to learn how to fight back against all these strategies. And Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, and we're going to dig into this more next week. But he says the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power. You, you know, the devil is not nearly as powerful as God. He may be more powerful than you and I. He's got a bunch of wings for crying out loud. I don't have any wings. I can barely fly. He may be more powerful than you. He is not even close to being as powerful as God. He is not even to be mentioned in the same breath. And the weapons that God has given you to fight him with, they're not just the weapons that you have access to. They're not these or they're not worldly weapons. No, they they're, they're they have divine power to demolish strongholds. 
You've got divine power accessible to you. You've got divine power ready to demolish the accusations of your enemy, the temptations of your enemy, and the lies of your enemy. You don't have to be holding to them. You don't have to listen to them. Victory has already been declared. The devil is already defeated, and he is in his death throes. Next week, I'll show you how to claim that victory. If you're here today, and you don't know Jesus, Romans 8.31 says, if God is for us, who could be against us? If God is for me, who can be against me? Psalm 27.1, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Who do I even have to be afraid of? For greater is he that is in me than he that is in this world. He's just a created being. He's out there doing everything that he can to steal your purpose, but he doesn't even have the authority to do it. We will stand on the promises of God and we will have victory because that is what has been promised to us. If you're in here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe you're still falling to those temptations. You know, maybe you're like, wow, that is my life. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life in an endless cycle that just makes me feel emptier and emptier and emptier. I got lies about myself echoing in my head. I've got lies about the church echoing in my head. I've got lies about God. I've got lies about my perception of the world on repeat over and over. And I want it to stop. I want silence. I'm being accused day and night. I can feel it. I feel the guilt of it. I feel the shame of it. And I want freedom from it. That freedom has already been given to you. It's been offered freely. You see, for a long time, man did everything that we could to get close to the holiness of God, but we could never quite get there on our own. And because your God loves you so deeply and so much and so sincerely, he decided to close that gap himself. And he stepped into the earth as the son of God, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life and then went to the cross so that you would never have to listen to the accusations of the devil again. His blood washed you whiter than snow. Your guilt has been removed. You are forgiven. You've been set free. If you'd like to step into that freedom today with every head bowed and every eye closed, would you just say this prayer with me? Heavenly Father, I need you today. Forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for, for, for believing the accusations, for believing the lies, for falling to the temptation, for trying to do it on my own. I need you and your power. So everything that I am from this day forward, I give myself to you. In Jesus' name, amen.